So whatever your background, whatever your story, we stand on level ground tonight, coming to the word of the Lord and to Jesus Christ, our only hope. I invite you to turn there with me just now in the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 1. And we're doing our series through this book. If you want to pull out one of the church Bibles, you'll find this on page 774. Uh, began our study last week looking at this chapter. We're going to spend one more week in it before moving on to chapter 2. So Jonah chapter 1, I'm going to start reading in verse 1, reading uh, through to the end of the chapter. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that your word speaks clearly and perfectly, and yet we are sometimes slow to understand it, slow to pick up on your great love toward us and its implications for our lives. So come again and be our teacher. I pray that our most fundamental identity, our base meaning, our central understanding would be that we are a people who are loved by you and that we would then order our lives around that great love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, we began our study in Jonah last week. Three more things I want to glean from this text before, before we move on from Jonah chapter 1. And really to get the ball rolling, I want to underline an idea that we began to discuss last week. And here it is. The book of Jonah clearly teaches us, point one, sometimes God asks us to do things that we don't want to do. Sometimes God asks us to do things that we really don't want to do. So Jonah is met by the Lord, and the Lord says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I've heard of these people. I know of their wickedness. I know of their evil and of their brutality. And I don't want to go uh, lose life and limb for the sake of these enemies, for the sake of these enemies who, who aren't even part of God's people, the Israelites. I might die on this mission. Even worse, they might be saved on this mission. So for a variety of reasons, I don't want to do this. Now, We said last week, and I think it's still true this week, there's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. There's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. God asks us to do things that we maybe don't want to do. How have you experienced this? Think even over the last week. Maybe you hurt someone and and you know the Lord was saying, hey, you need to seek forgiveness. And you thought, I don't really want to do that. Or maybe the Lord's blessed you financially and then he's commanding you to be generous and you think, I don't really want to do that. Maybe you're dating someone you know you shouldn't be and the Lord's saying, hey, you you need to break up and you're thinking, "I, I don't really want to do that. Maybe you've been granted great success and the Lord is saying, hey, be humble. And you're thinking, I don't really want to do that. Maybe it's not so much for the things that, you do, that you're doing. Sometimes this plays out with our beliefs. Sometimes the Lord calls us to believe things that we maybe don't want to believe. We live in confused yet highly, highly charged times where if you transgress the reigning pieties, you will quickly be met with accusations of being judgmental and bigoted. And sometimes it can be easier for us to go with the flow of cultural opinion than it is to really wrestle with what what God is calling us to believe. An example this weekend would be on, on the topic of abortion. How easy it is to get caught up in aspects of culture that would say, hey, um, this is, this is, this is a woman's choice. This has nothing to do with you. Who are you to tell someone else what they should do? Certainly, who are you to tell a woman what she should do with, with her body? And the cultural weight of that argument has quite force to it. And sometimes it's easier for us just to go with the flow of that than it is to kick against the goads, wrestle with the scriptures, and see that the Bible's really clear. The Bible is really clear that life begins at conception, and from that very moment we have a soul, and to end that life inside the womb is just as wicked as it is to end a life outside of the womb. There are all sorts of issues where we might be tempted to go with the culture. Of course, like Jonah, we can always find reasons to justify our behavior or to justify our beliefs. But a clear lesson from the book of Jonah is that when we do that, it never works out well. It never works out well. Part of the fight of faith, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, part of the fight of faith is to believe that God is the God of love 
and that he is at work for the welfare and good of his people, that he draws us to himself by sheer grace. We're in relationship with him because of unconditional love, and now he does tell us how to live, tells us what we should do, tells us what we should believe, and his commands aren't burdensome. His commands are only ever for our welfare, for our good. In fact, we find when we do submit to him, when we allow him to sit on the throne, and when we follow him both in, in, in who we are and what we do and what, what we believe, we, we find that his commands are life-giving and good. And we find that turning from them actually only ever ends in regret. So this summer, uh, middle of sabbatical, my family and I uh, go on this trip, and we're doing some hiking in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, okay, beautiful place, and uh, one of these great trails where you're kind of working your way back and forth, back and forth, back and forth through kind of this thick forest area, and then every now and again, the path would suddenly open up to this kind of spectacular view where you could see for, for miles and miles and miles, just a, a, a great experience for us as a family. Well, we're making our way back to, to the car, winding our way through these trails, and just a little little bit ahead of us, I see a group of hikers that have stopped in the middle of the trail. I, I make my way towards them, trying to figure out what's going on, and then I follow their eyes to see what the pause is for. And there, just climbing up and down this tree, is this bear cub. And it was this amazing, joy-filled, and kind of awe-filled moment. We all had to suppress laughter because this bear was so cute right? Little things, scampering up, scampering back down. No plan, just play. Right. At the same time, kind of like this off-field moment. You know when you're, um, when you're out in, in, in creation, when you're out in nature, uh, the greatness of it, the grandeur of it it's, it, it's holy ground. We get a taste of God's greatness, his grandeur, when we're, we're in these moments. So we're in this moment of joy, in this moment of awe, just enjoying this moment when one of the other hikers says, oh, we should really get, we should really get moving. And I'm thinking, no, that's a terrible idea. We should really be staying, right? Let's, let's film, let's take photos, let's stay, let's stay for as long as we can. And, but then they explained the why, right? You know the why? Right, wherever baby bear is, mama bear ain't far behind. Mama bear, not a big fan of unscheduled play dates, right? <laughs> I didn't like the command when I understood it. I realized it was for my good. And I realized that, that not following it would end in regret. God says, you get the illustration, don't stare at bears. I say, oh, but bears are so cute. Then I get eaten by a bear, right? <laughs> and that's, that's what God's commands are like. Friends, obedience, listen, I, I get it. Well, for me, <laughs> obedience can be hard, but disobedience is always harder. Obedience can be hard, but disobedience is always harder. Yes, God asks us to do things we might not want to do at first, but when we do them, we never regret following his commands. You know, I've never, you know, I've been in, in pastoral ministry 14 years. I've never had anyone come into my office and say, my life's blown up because I was obeying God, right? I'm in a really hard place because I've just been too obedient. I think I have too much Jesus in my life and things aren't going well for me. That is never the conversation. And that's never the struggle in my own life either. When we follow the Lord, it does us good. And yet, don't we know that while no one ever regretted obeying God, we ourselves and millions in the world do end up um, getting eaten by bears. 
So God says forgive, and they don't forgive, and they turn out to be a bit of a bully. Or God says be generous, and they're not generous, and they turn out to be kind of stingy. And God says be humble, and they're not humble, and they end up prideful and and haughty. Or God says believe what my word says, and we don't believe it, and so we end up becoming confused and, and contradictory. Following the Lord works out well. Wandering from him doesn't. Where do you see this in your own life? Where do you see him calling you to obey him tonight? The solution is to obey without delay. Obey without delay. We hear the Father's voice. We follow him because his commands are for our good. Point one, sometimes God asks us to do things we don't want to do. But walking with God is always better. Point two, yes, sometimes God asks us to do things we don't want to do. But what God is going to do he always does. What God is going to do, he always does. Sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, is one of the big themes of the book of Jonah. What does sovereignty mean? Very simply, it means that God is in control. God is in control of all things, and he is working all things to his appointed ends. So we can hurry and we can scurry in a million different directions. We can even run from him. But at the end of the day, God is the God who rules and overrules all things. And this passage gives us just a great picture of it. Jonah is running from God, but it turns out that God controls, verse 4, the wind and the waves. He also controls, verse 7, the casting of the lot. Isn't that interesting? The sailors cast lots to see whose problem this is, and the Lord gives them their answer that is, that is Jonah. One proverb says, um, the, lap is da- the, the, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Like God, God's in control of the wind, and he's in control of the roll of a dice. He's in control, verse 17, of this big fish that shows up. And he's orchestrating all of these things and all of these details in order to bless his people. Don't you love it that he even uses Jonah's, Jonah's, Jonah's rebellion in this? He's even in control of Jonah's sin? Remember, Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he doesn't want to share God's word with non-Israelites. And what's he doing on this very boat? Sharing about God with non-Israelites. The very means that was to take him away from that fate have ended up realizing that fate. Daniel Timmer, one commentator, says, Jonah's anti-missionary activity has ironically resulted in the conversion of non-Israelites. What God is going to do, he always does. He's in control of his world, and he's bringing all things together to fulfill his purposes here on earth. So, a singer-songwriter from Tennessee called Ryan Long, and I heard a song of his this week called If It Hadn't Rained. It's musically kind of meh, but lyrically really beautiful. Yeah. Because it's about um, his mother. He writes about his mother, and he describes her as the kind of girl that you saw in high school, but you never really knew her name. Well, one day, she was walking home from high school, and it started to pour down with rain, and a kid from the neighborhood, uh, neighborhood boy that she knew, invited her in to stay dry, and, and one thing led to another, and before she knew it, this high school girl was looking at a positive test from the drugstore. And as she realized she was pregnant, she cursed the fact that it had rained. Well, being a young girl in high school, she knew that there was no way that she could, she could keep this child. 
Here's, here's what Ryan Long writes. The day she was going to end it, she was headed out the door for the clinic, but the rain was pouring down. She sat on the couch and Oprah was on with children saying what their mothers had almost done. And in that moment, she had a change of mind and a change of heart. And a few months later, Ryan Long was born. Now, he says, he sits with his son and daughter, forever grateful that God uses rain. Don't you love how in control God is? I sometimes think Oprah's God. Turns out God's using her, right? <laughs> who, who knew? God is using the, the, the TV schedule, right? And he's using the weather patterns to save the life of a wee boy who hasn't even been born yet. Because what God is going to do, he always, always does. He's in control and he's bringing about his purposes here on earth. Now listen, there are a thousand applications of this for, for our lives and uh, some nuance we would need to add to this idea too. But for tonight, I just want to say, um, isn't this encouraging? <laughs> isn't it encouraging that God's in control? So many areas of life where this is just really good news for us. So, you know, you're studying for that test and you've no idea how it's going to go and then you remember God holds your future and, and all will be well. Or you're in a relationship and you're asking like, you know, are they one? Is she the one? Is he the one? I don't know. I'm wrestling with this. I'm struggling with this. There's no equation to help figure this out. And then we remember, well, isn't it good that the Lord holds your future? Or those of you with kids, you're raising kids, and you're thinking, am I doing the right things here, or am I totally screwing them up? And the answer is probably yes, right? And isn't it good to remember that God loves your kids more than you do? Here's my parenting experience. I lurch from mistake to error, and they keep turning out okay. Yeah? Why? Because they're in his hands. And here, more to the point, when they don't turn out okay, when they turn from him, if they're running from him, if you have, if you have kids that are doing that just now, our hope is still in the sovereignty of God. The fact that, that he holds them in his, his hands and he'll bring about his purposes for them. Isn't it good news that God even used Jonah's rebellion and so God's so sovereign even, even over the mistakes and regrets of our past? You know, you have something in your story that you still feel deep shame over. See how God can take even that and, and redeem it for his plans, for his purposes that you are never, there's no such thing as a second-class Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian who's done something in their past that means they're on the bench. Because here's the problem. See, if we put sinners on the bench, we're all on the bench. And no one's in the game. And the good news of the gospel is, we're all in the game. <laughs> Broken as we are, the Lord is at work in our stories now and our mistakes of the past. Whatever we face, disappointment, unemployment, diagnoses, divorce, whatever we've done to make things worse, there is a God in heaven, and what he's going to do, he always does. Okay, point one. Sometimes God has to do things we don't want to do. Point two, what God's going to do, he always does. Point three and final, God always saves through substitutes. Let's look at this in the text. God always saves through 
substitutes. We're in the middle of a storm. Look down at verse 12. We're in the middle of a storm, and Jonah starts to have compassion for his fellow sailors. He realizes that the trouble has befallen them because of, of his sin, and so he tells them to throw him overboard. Now, at this point, it seems that what has kind of awakened in Jonah isn't a kind of true repentance. He doesn't refer to the Lord. He certainly doesn't use the language of repentance. He just feels bad for the impact he's having on, uh, on his fellow sailors. And so he asks him to throw him overboard, which is actually likely a kind of, and it sounds very heroic, but it's probably a deep, deeply mixed motives. On, on one hand, he recognizes he doesn't want to bring trouble on the sailors. On the other hand, what will guarantee he will never have to go to Nineveh? More than being thrown into the heart of the sea. You know, there are times, friends, be careful. There are times we would rather die than do what the Lord has called us to. Right? And so here's, here's Jonah, makes motives. Uh, the sailors do all that they can to avoid throwing him overboard. It's one of the fascinating things in the book of Jonah is that everything's upside down. Nobody conforms to the stereotype. So you have Jonah, who's meant to be a kind of holy dude, who's just running away from the Lord. And then you have these non-Israelites, these non-believing pagan sailors who are acting in a really admirable and holy way. In chapters 3 and 4, we're going to see this again. Jonah is still going to be rebelling against the Lord, and we're going to have this, this non-Israelite pagan king who's going to be behaving admirably. Everything's upside down and topsy-turvy in Jonah's world. And here, again, the sailors are trying to avoid taking his life, and, and they actually take steps to that end. They've thrown already the cargo overboard. Now, verse 13, they, they row for land. But then we get to verse 15. Realizing they have no alternative, they do as Jonah is instructed. You see it there? They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Jonah hits the water, and all is calm. One commentator says, The raging of the storm was a real expression of the anger of God. The, the, the reason for the storm was because ang God was angry with Jonah's, Jonah's sin. The raging of the storm was a real expression of the anger of God, which was turned aside when Jonah was cast into the waves. Jonah was sacrificed that the sailors might not die. God is saving the sailors through a substitute, Jonah. And in that, through this rebellious prodigal prophet, we're being pointed to the true prophet. Jesus preached a sermon on this. He called it the sign of Jonah. And if you turn to Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus says, As Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. As Jonah was cast in, into the water and as he was sacrificed, the substitute so the sailors might live, so I, the Son of Man, will be sacrificed and, and dwell in the hearts of the earth for three days and three nights so that my people might live. And don't you love, I love how Jesus, love how Jesus ends this sermon in verse 41 when he says, behold, like, so this story about Jonah, isn't it amazing? Well, yeah, but behold, Jesus says, something greater than Jonah is here. What's, what's this thing that's greater than Jonah? Himself. Jesus himself. The greater prophet, the greater sacrifice, the greater substitute who will save a greater number from the anger of God. Sacrificed so that we need not die. 
It's because of this idea. Let's do a little theological reflection together. It's because of this idea that the New Testament writers refer to the death of Christ. Have you ever been reading the Bible and come across the word propitiation? The New Testament writers refer to the death of Christ as a propitiation. I'd say write it down, but it's like super hard to spell, okay? But what, what they're doing here is, is using a theological word as an attempt to get their arms around um, an idea or a concept. And the idea or the concept that's being described is, is, is what's pictured for us in Jonah. A propitiation is something that takes on anger, experiences wrath, so that other people don't have to. And this is what Jesus does for us. He deals with the wrath of God against sin by sacrificing himself in our place. And so the New Testament writers come along, like Paul in Romans chapter 3. Paul says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation in his blood. There's the word, propitiation. Paul's saying, yeah, when Jesus died upon the cross, let's reflect on that for a second. Let's chew on that. Let's think about what was, what was going on there. Was it just this kind of example for us? No, it was more than that. It was a propitiation. He was experiencing the anger of God so that we don't need to experience the anger of God. First John, we get similar ideas. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, the one who takes anger so we don't have to face anger. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. First John 4 verse 10, it's interesting. Uh, if you grew up in the church, you probably memorized the first half of this verse, but not the second half. First John 4 10 says, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. Rest of the verse, that he loved us, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, God's love is shown to us not just in the fact that he could have loved us from afar, but is really shown to us in the fact that he sent Jesus to take the wrath and punishment that sin deserves upon himself so that we don't need to. Friends, God is right and he is, he is, he is holy and he is just. He is right to be angry at sin. We probably need another sermon on this another day because many of us, and myself at times too, kind of have a, have a problem with, with it, like an angry God. But for tonight, we do not want a God who allows evil and wickedness to go unnoticed and unpunished. We don't want a God who would look out upon some of the horrors and the brutality and the evil, not just of world history, but of our present life today and shrug nonchalantly as if it doesn't matter. Our hearts cry out for, for justice, for those who have been oppressed, for those who have been abused, for those who have been subjected to all kinds of slavery and evil and wickedness. Our hearts cry out for justice, and, and God is, is right to be angry with sin, but if he's right to be angry with the sin out there, I have to acknowledge he's also right to be angry with the sin that's in here. God is right to be angry with sin, we don't want a world where evil goes unpunished, but he is gracious to take our punishment upon himself. That's the idea of, of Jonah as the substitute. Jesus as propitiation. The impact on the sailors, look at verse 16, it's great. It's profound impact. When the storm becomes still, they're more afraid than when the storm was raging. Before they were just afraid of death. Now they're beholding a God who controls the wind and the waves. 
It's a new kind of fear, not terror in the face of death, but awe in the face of, of God. So what do they do? Well, they call him Lord. They call him Yahweh. It's his, his covenant name, his personal name. They offer sacrifices. They make vows. This substitutionary love impacts them. Now, if Jonah's love impacted them, how much more should Jesus' impact us? If something greater than Jonah is here, how much bigger should the impact be on us for people who don't merely fear earthly storms, but would need to fear the God who could send us to eternal death, but can now allow fear to give way to wonder because Jesus has taken that punishment upon himself. You see, it's this kind of love, sacrificial love, substitutionary love that gives us the power to change. It's actually only this kind of love that enables us to make sense of the first two points of this sermon. It's only because we've been loved like this that we can do what God wants us to do even when we don't particularly want to do it. <laughs> because we say, Lord, yeah, I don't particularly want to forgive that person, but oh man, when I reflect upon how much you've forgiven me, something's happening in my heart and, and I now want to forgive that person. Lord, I don't particularly want to be generous, but when I reflect upon how generous you've been with me, man, something's happening in my heart and I, I want to grow in generosity. You know what? I don't particularly want to be want to be humble. Taking some credit actually actually feels good. But when I reflect upon my need and my brokenness before you and how you've loved me in that place, it just it breeds humility to my very bones. God calls us, yes, to do things we don't want to do, but understanding his sacrificial substitutionary love enables us to do it. And not just that, but point two as well. It's this kind of love that gives us the power. To, to trust in his sovereignty, to trust in him when we don't really know what he's up to. When there's things going on in our lives we can't quite yet make sense of, we're able to say, Lord, I cannot deny how loved I am by you. And if you've given me Christ, I can trust that along with him, you'll graciously give me all things. If I seek first you and your kingdom, all those things will be added to me as well, that, that you have a plan for my life that is good, I can gladly submit to a, to a God like that. I'm over time. Point one, <laughs> sometimes God asks us to do things we don't want to do. Point two, what God is going to do, he always does. Point three, God always saves through substitutes. Next week, we're going to get into this whole big fish thing, right? What is that about? Yeah. Did this happen? Did it not? Is it a picture? Is it an illustration? Who cares anyway? What difference does it make to to our lives. I don't know. Come back. Let's figure it out, right? <laughs> For tonight, though, and until then, friends, walk with God. Obey him. Don't get eaten by bears. Okay. Second, trust in God. <laughs> Rest in his plan for your life. He, he uses Oprah. He uses the rain. Third, do those things by remembering how greatly you are loved. Let's pray together. Father, the need of our souls is to hear both the encouragement and the challenge of your word. The encouragement that our deepest identity, our true meaning, can be and should be grounded in the fact that we are loved by you, loved as we are, not as we ought to be. And then the challenge that that love brings with it, that because of that, we are able to live as new creations. We're able to uh, make a difference in this world. 
And we're able to do what you've called us to do and, and trust you as we do it. So Lord, with this grace that is ours in Jesus, well up in our hearts and in our souls, and would we be different for it? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.